3: part of the district of wonders network featuring tales to terrify and the all new far fetched fables everyone has a story in the district of wonders come and find yours <laughs>
1: This is the Starship over, everybody welcome hello and welcome to show 449 I am your host Tony C Smith hello everyone I hope everyone is fine and dandy we have the Hugo winning novelette story today Fooled in Beijing by Hao Jingfang, translated by Ken Liu. That is coming in today's show. How cool is that? The winner of the Hugo Award. Yes, we knew it was going to win, man. Cause, course, Jeremy knew it wasn't a guess. Get away. Foresight, he's had that story for months, man. <laughs> yes, well, I'm quite... A, it was a bit of a lucky break, I guess. We've got, got the <laughs> novelette. We've got that one there playing now. So that's coming today's show. We've also got Amy H. Sturgis who which is really nice as well. Amy was at WorldCon, you know, where the King Hugo Wards were and again it was like WorldCon in London, just loads of like talks. Amy loves that kind of side of it, you know, getting up and talking, oh enough of me. The bar is where I talk as where I do my talking. <laughs> but Amy, one of our being talks is she's actually recorded it there now, so we, you can kind of have a listen to to that, where she kind of, like you say, got up in front of people and, and gave this lecture, which is just fantastic. You know, it's all kind of the Hunger Games, so if you're into all that, we're going to have Amy doing her little section at the back end of this this novelette story, which is just fantastic. So, but before, before all that, before all that, because I'm just kind of going on a riff there now, like I say, the Hugos were... That's this weekend gone, you know what I mean, just gone. And as you know, Tales to Terrify was in there. Now, in our category, the one that won was no vote. So that means, you know, because I'm sure if I'm right in thinking, I know Tales to Terrify was put on the kind of puppy slate. I've got a feeling all the other ones that were in that category were. And when I look back, I'm sure. I don't know. You know, seventy-five percent of them were like YouTube channels. If I'm, if I'm right and thinking, so it, the award went. and They say that's that's the way it goes. Do you know what I mean? It's, we had a kind of England. That's how it would vote out. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure the, the kind of voting systems changed there now. So I don't know if this is going to happen again with the kind of the Hugo's all the kind of being, the puppies being able to kind of ransack it and all that. But it, I don't think it kind of was that much of an upheaval for the wars i don't i don't know if it spoiled it that much what and I didn't kind of work it out, but if you look on the kind of the when when you know the announcements come there's a long list comes out, and you know if the puppies hadn't kind of messed it all up, it's looking like a podcast or a, yeah i think it's a podcast called Tea in Jeopardy would have won the the kind of the overall vote for our fan cast category. And I know I was I was I think Robin told us that that went, there's a there's an award called the the Alfie which is given out at the losers' party by George R. R. Martin and T in Jeopardy won that so you know even if the kind of the, the whole thing was all kind of played out nicely it looked like there was a sh- like you say, a show called T in Jeopardy would have won the, the fan casting and. I'm sure Robin as well, looked, you know, looked into all of the kind of figures. They came second, I think, last year in that in that category as well. So congratulations, anyway, to, you know, everyone else who kind of took part. And I just want to say a big, you know, thank you for everyone on Tales to Terrify who kind of just stuck with it and just, you know, wasn't phased by this kind of puppy slate and we just kind of kept that in and just, we didn't want to pull it out. Do you know what I mean? We kind of had a little conference and all that the big kind of guns, you know, the George R. Martins, and we're all saying, just stick in, do you know what I mean? Just let them kind of, the puppies kind of whinge on. So we just kind of kept it in, and, you know, overall it was a no vote, but it's you no know, skin off our nose. It's still, you know what I mean? I'll still kind of get, you know, on the on the Tales of Terrifying website, you know, and Hugo nominated, hey, don't, <laughs> I'll still put that on, you know what I mean, when, when I get round to it. So, yes, that's that's how it stands but regardless regards of Starship Silver, so we just keep ploughing into the dark, distant depths of space. And, like I say, this week we have the winner of the Best Novelette category. You know what I mean? Just fantastic to get this story. Fold in Beijing by Hao Jingfang, translated by Ken Liu. And it's narrated by Catherine Inskip as well. And I'll mention a, you know, a little bit more about the kind of story coming up, but... You know, did, did anybody catch last week's story? Just you know what I mean? It just some in, yeah, granted, in some places it made your eyes water. Do you know what I mean? Well that's I, you know, when kinda of Jeremy put that story up I was like, Oh man, Jeremy, Jeremy, I you know what I mean? Jeremy knew how good it was. And like, ah I, I guess I think I put me money on that one because I just thought it was better, you know, but you, you can it's a kind of, it's a mugs game to bet, bet on the Hugo's, do you know what I mean? But this story won. Which is just, again, just fantastic. And, you know, Jeremy had the kind of foresight to kind of know the good stories. And I'm I'm chuffed a bit He, he, he managed it. And we've had this, you know, for a, a while as well. So Jeremy Keenan can spot a good story. There you go. So this is week two of the Hugo nominees. Like I say, we'll play the story first and then we'll get into Amy's little, little section as well. So the main fiction coming up is "Fool in Beijing by Hao Zhang Fang. Translated by Ken Liu. Originally, appeared had a in Uncanny Magazine, and actually, I think they won best best semi-prose magazine as well. So that that Uncanny Magazine's doing great things as well. I'm hearing. In 2002, Hao Jingfang was awarded first prize in the new concept writing competition. She gained a graduate undergraduate degree from Tsinghua University Department of Physics, and her PhD from the same university in, in Economics and management in 2012 her fiction has appeared in various publications she has published two fun, full-length novels wandering meath and return of cron a book of cultural essays europe in time and a short story collection star travelers her fiction has appeared before in english translation in *Lightspeed*. speed and we know about ken lu ken lu is the author and translator of speculative fiction as well as a lawyer and programmer, a winner of the Nebula Hugo World Fantasy Award, he has been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov, Asimov's Analog Clark, where Lightspeed Strange Horizons, among other places. He lives in family of Boston, Massachusetts. And I say this story, man, this story is just... Oh, just Catherine Skip. Catherine wears galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She is addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. There we go. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present
0: Folding Beijing by Hao Jingfang. Translated by Ken Liu. At ten of five in the morning, Lao Dao crossed the busy pedestrian lane on his way to find Pang Li. After the end of his shift at the waste processing station, Lao Dao had gone home first to shower and then to change. He was wearing a white shirt and a pair of brown pants, the only decent clothes he owned. The shirt's cuffs were frayed, so he rolled them up to his elbows. Laudau was forty-eight, single, and long past the age when he still took care of his appearance. As he had no one to pester him about the domestic details, he had simply kept this outfit for years. Every time he wore it, he'd come home afterward, "'take off the shirt and pants and fold them up neatly to put away. "'Working at the waste-processing station "'meant that there were few occasions that called for the outfit, "'save a wedding now and then for a friend's son or daughter. "'Today, however, he was apprehensive about meeting strangers "'without looking at least somewhat respectable. "'After five hours at the waste-processing station, "'he also had misgivings about how he smelled.' People who had just gotten off work filled the road. Men and women crowded every street vendor, picking through local produce and bargaining loudly. Customers packed the plastic tables at the food hawker stalls, which were immersed in the aroma of frying oil. They ate heartily with their faces buried in bowls of hot and sour rice noodles, their heads hidden by clouds of white steam. Other stands featured mountains of jujubes and walnuts, and hunks of cured meat swung overhead. This was the busiest hour of the day. Work was over, and everyone was hungry and loud. Lao Tao squeezed through the crowd slowly. A waiter carrying dishes shouted and pushed his way through the throng. Lao Dao followed close behind. Peng Li lived some ways down the lane. Lao Dao climbed the stairs, but Peng wasn't home. A neighbour said that Peng usually didn't return until right before market closing time, but she didn't know exactly when. Lao Dao became anxious. He glanced down at his watch. Almost five a.m. He went back downstairs to wait at the entrance of the apartment building. A group of hungry teenagers squatted around him, devouring their food. He recognised two of them because he remembered meeting them a couple of times at Peng Li's house. Each kid had a plate of chow mein or chow fun, and they shared two dishes family style. The dishes were a mess, while pairs of chopsticks continued to search for elusive, overlooked bits of meat amongst the chopped peppers. Laudau sniffed his forearms again to be sure that the stench of garbage was off of him. The noisy, quotidian chaos around him assured him with its familiarity. "'Listen, do you know how much they charge for an order of twice-cooked pork over there?' a boy named Lee asked. "'Fuck, I just bit into some sand!' A heavy set kid named Ding said, while covering his mouth with one hand, which had very dirty fingernails. We need to get our money back from the vendor. Lee ignored him. Three hundred and forty Yuan, said Lee. You hear that? three hundred forty for twice cooked pork. And for boiled beef? four hundred and twenty. How could the prices be so expensive? Ding mumbled as he clutched his cheek. What do they put in there? The other two youths weren't interested in the conversation and concentrated on shoveling food from the plate into the mouth. Lee watched them, and his yearning gaze seemed to go through them and focus on something beyond. Loudow's stomach growled. He quickly averted his eyes, but it was too late. His empty stomach felt like an abyss that made his body tremble. It had been a month since he last had a morning meal. He used to spend about a hundred each day on this meal, which translated to three thousand for the month, If he could stick to his plan for a whole year, he'd be able to save enough to afford two months of tuition for Tang Tang's kindergarten. He looked into the distance. The trucks of the city cleaning crew were approaching slowly. He began to steel himself. If Peng Li didn't return in time, he would have to go on this journey without consulting him. Although it would make the trip far more difficult and dangerous, time was of the essence and he had to go. The loud chants of the woman next to him hawking her jujube interrupted his thoughts and gave him a headache. The peddlers at the other end of the road began to pack up their wares, and the crowd, like fish in a pond disturbed by a stick, dispersed. No one was interested in fighting the city cleaning crew. As the vendors got out of the way, the cleaning trucks patiently advanced. Vehicles were normally not allowed in the pedestrian lane, but the cleaning trucks were an exception. Anybody who dilly-dallied would be packed up by force. Finally Peng Li appeared, his shirt unbuttoned, a toothpick dangling between his lips, strolling leisurely and burping from time to time. Now in his sixties, Peng had become lazy and slovenly, his cheeks drooped like the jowls of a sharp a, giving him the appearance of being perpetually grumpy. Looking at him now, one might get the impression that he was a loser whose only ambition in life was a full belly. However, even as a child, Lao Dao had heard his father recounting Peng Li's exploits when he had been a young man. Lao Dao went up to meet Peng in the street. Before Peng Li could greet him, Lao Tao blurted out, I don't have time to explain, but I need to get to first space. Can you tell me how? Peng Li was stunned. It had been ten years since anyone brought up first space with him. He held the remnant of the toothpick in his fingers. It had broken between his teeth without his being aware of it. For some seconds he said nothing, but then he saw the anxiety on Lao Dao's face and dragged him toward the apartment building. "'Come into my place and let's talk. You have to start from there anyway to get to where you want to go.' The city cleaning crew was almost upon them, and the crowd scattered like autumn leaves in a wind. Go home, go home! The change is about to start! Someone called from atop one of the trucks. Pang Li took Lao Dao upstairs into his apartment. His ordinary, single occupancy public housing unit was sparsely furnished six square metres in area, a washroom, a cooking corner, a table, and a chair. "'a cocoon bed equipped with storage drawers "'underneath for clothes and miscellaneous items. "'The walls were covered with water stains and footprints, "'bare save for a few haphazardly installed hooks "'for jackets, pants and linens. "'Once he entered, "'Pang took all the clothes and towels off the wall-hooks "'and stuffed them into one of the drawers. "'During the change, nothing was supposed to be unsecured. "'Lao Dao had once lived in a single occupancy unit "'just like this one. "'As soon as he entered,' He felt the flavour of the past hanging in the air. Pang Li glared at Lao Dao. "'I'm not going to show you the way unless you tell me why.' It was already five-thirty. Lao Dao had only half an hour left. Lao Dao gave him the bare outlines of the story, picking up the bottle with a message inside, hiding in the trash chute, being entrusted with the errand in second space, "'making his decision and coming here for guidance. "'He had so little time that he had to leave right away. "'You hid in the trash chutes last night to sneak into second space.' "'Peng Li frowned. "'That means you had to wait twenty-four hours.' "'For two hundred thousand yuan?' Lao said. "'Even hiding for a week would be worth it.' "'I didn't know you were so short on money.' Laodau was silent for a moment. Tang Tang is going to be old enough for kindergarten in a year. I've run out of time. Laodau's research on kindergarten tuition had shocked him. For schools with decent reputations, the parents had to show up with their bedrolls and line up a couple of days before registration. The two parents had to take turns, so that while one held their place in the line the other could go to the bathroom or grab a bite to eat. Even after lining up for forty-plus hours, a place wasn't guaranteed. Those with enough money had already bought up most of the openings for their offspring, so the poorer parents had to endure the line, hoping to grab one of the few remaining spots. Mind you, this was just for decent schools. The really good schools? Forget about lining up. Every opportunity was sold off to those with money. Laodau didn't harbour unrealistic hopes, but Tang Tang had loved music since she was an eighteen-month-old. Every time she heard music in the streets, her face lit up and she twisted her little body and waved her arms about in a dance. She looked especially cute during those moments. Lao Tao was dazzled as though surrounded by stage lights. No matter how much it cost, he vowed to send Tang Tang to a kindergarten that offered music and dance lessons. Pung Li took off his shirt and washed while he spoke with Lao Dao. The washing consisted only of splashing some drops of water over his face, because the water was already shut off and only a thin trickle came out of the faucet. Pung Li took down a dirty towel from the wall and wiped his face carelessly, before stuffing the towel into a drawer as well. His moist hair gave off an oily glint. "'What are you working so hard for?' Pung Li asked. "'It's not like she's your real daughter.' "'I don't have time for this,' Laodau said. "'Just tell me the way.' "'Pang Li sighed. "'Do you understand that if you're caught "'it's not just a matter of paying a fine? "'You're going to be locked up for months. "'I thought you'd gone there multiple times.' "'Just four times. "'I got caught the fifth time.' "'That's more than enough. "'If I could make it four times, "'it would be no big deal to get caught once.' Laodau's errand required him to deliver a message to first Space. Success would earn him a hundred thousand yuan, and if he managed to bring back a reply, two hundred thousand. Sure, it was illegal, but no one would be harmed, and as long as he followed the right route and method, the probability of being caught wasn't great. And the cash, the cash was very real. He could think of no reason to not take up the offer. He knew that when Peng Li was younger, He had snuck into first base multiple times to smuggle contraband, and made quite a fortune. There was a way. It was a quarter to six. He had to get going, now. Pang Lee sighed again. He could see it was useless to try to dissuade Lao Dao. He was old enough to feel lazy and tired of everything, but he remembered how he had felt as a younger man, and he would have made the same choice as Lao Dao. Back then he didn't care about going to prison. What was the big deal? You lost a few months and got beaten up a few times, but the money made it worthwhile. As long as you refused to divulge the source of the money, no matter how much you suffered, you could survive it. The Security Bureau's citation was nothing more than routine enforcement. Pang Li took Lao Dao to his back window and pointed at the narrow path hidden in the shadows below. Start by climbing down the drain pipe from my unit. Under the felt cloth, you'll find hidden footholds I installed back in the day. If you stick close enough to the wall, the cameras won't see you. Once you're on the ground, stick to the shadows and head that way until you get to the edge. You'll feel as well as see the cleft. Follow the cleft and go north. Remember, go north. Then Peng Li explained the technique for entering first space as the ground turned during the change. He had to wait until the ground began to cleave and rise, then, from the elevated edge, he had to swing over and scramble about fifty metres over the cross-section, until he reached the other side of the turning earth, climb over and head east. There he would find a bush that he could hold on to as the ground descended and closed up. He could then conceal himself in the bush, before Pangli had even finished his explanation. Lao Tao was already halfway out the window, getting ready to climb down. Peng Li held on to Lao Dao and made sure his foot was securely in the first foothold. Then he stopped. I'm going to say something that you might not want to hear. I don't think you should go. Over there is not so great. If you go, you'll end up feeling your own life is shit, pointless. Lao Dao was reaching down with his other foot, testing for the next foothold. His body strained against the windowsill and his words came out laboured. Doesn't matter. I already know my life is shit without having gone there. Take care of yourself, Pang Li said. Lao Dao followed Pang Li's directions and groped his way down as quickly as he dared. The footholds felt very secure. He looked up and saw Pang Li light up a cigarette next to the window, taking deep drags. Pang Li put out the cigarette. "'Leaned out and seemed about to say something more, "'but ultimately he retreated back into his unit quietly. "'He closed his windows, which glowed with a faint light. "'Lao Dao imagined Peng Li crawling into his cocoon bed "'at the last minute, right before the change. "'Like millions of others across the city, "'the cocoon bed would release a soporific gas "'that put him into deep sleep. "'He would feel nothing as his body was transported "'by the flipping world.' and he would not open his eyes again until tomorrow evening, forty hours later. Pang Li was no longer young. He was no longer different from the other fifty million who lived in third space. Tao climbed faster, barely touching the footholds. When he was close enough to the ground, he let go and landed on all fours. Luckily, Pang Li's unit was only on the fourth story, not too far up. He got up and ran through the shadow cast by the building next to the lake. He saw the crevice in the grass, where the ground would open up. But before he reached it, he heard the muffled rumbling from behind him, interrupted by a few crisp clangs. Lao Tao turned around and saw Pang Li's building break in half. The top half folded down and pressed toward him, slowly but inexorably. Shocked, Lao Tao stared at the sight for a few moments before recovering. He raced to the fissure in the ground, and lay prostrate next to it. The change began. This was a process repeated every twenty-four hours. The whole world started to turn. The sound of steel and masonry folding, grating, colliding filled the air like an assembly line grinding to a halt. The towering buildings of the city gathered and merged into solid blocks. Neon signs, shop awnings, balconies, and other protruding fixtures retracted into the buildings or flatten themselves into a thin layer against the walls, like skin. Every inch of space was utilised as the buildings compacted themselves into the smallest space. The ground rose up. Laudao watched and waited until the fissure was wide enough. He crawled over the marble-lined edge onto the earthen wall, grabbing onto bits of metal protruding out of the soil. As the cleft widened and the walls elevated, he climbed, using his hands as well as feet. At first he was climbing down, testing for purchase with his feet, but soon, as the entire section of ground rotated, he was lifted into the air, and up and down, flipped around. owl was thinking about last night. He had cautiously stuck his head out of the trash heap, alert for any sound from the other side of the gate. The fermenting, rotting garbage around him was pungent, greasy, fishy, even a bit sweet he leaned against the iron gate. Outside, the world was waking up. As soon as the yellow glow of the streetlight seeped into the seam under the lifting gate, he squatted and crawled out of the widening opening. The streets were empty. Lights came on in the tall buildings, story by story, fixtures extruded from the side of buildings, unfolding and extending, segment by segment. Porches emerged from the walls. The eaves rotated and gradually dropped down into position, Stairs extended and descended to the street. On both sides of the road, one black cube after another broke apart and opened, revealing the racks and shelves inside. Signboards emerged from the tops of the cubes and connected together, while plastic awnings extended from both sides of the lane to meet in the middle, forming a corridor of shops. The streets were empty, as though Laodau were dreaming. The neon lights came on. Tiny flashing LEDs on top of the shops formed into characters, advertising jujubes from Xinjiang, lappy noodles from northeast China, brando from Shanghai and cured meats from Hunan. For the rest of the day, Lao Dao couldn't forget the scene. He had lived in this city for forty-eight years, but he had never seen such a sight. His days had always started with the cocoon, and ended with the cocoon and the time in between was spent at work or navigating dirty tables at hawker stalls and loudly bargaining crowds surrounding street vendors. This was the first time he had seen the world bare. Every morning, an observer at some distance from the city, say, a truck driver waiting on the highway into Beijing, could see the entire city fold and unfold. At six in the morning— The truck drivers usually got out of their cabs and walked to the side of the highway, where they rubbed their eyes, still drowsy after an uncomfortable night in the truck. Yawning, they greeted each other and gazed at the distant city centre. The break in the highway was just outside the seventh ring road, while all the ground rotation occurred within the sixth ring road. The distance was perfect for taking in the whole city, like gazing at an island in the sea. In the early dawn, the city folded and collapsed. The skyscrapers bowed submissively like the humblest servants until their heads touched their feet. Then they broke again, folded again, and twisted their necks and arms, stuffing them into the gaps. The compacted blocks that used to be the skyscrapers shuffled and assembled into dense, gigantic Rubik's Cubes that fell into a deep slumber. The ground then began to turn— "'Square by square, pieces of the earth "'flipped one hundred and eighty degrees around an axis, "'revealing the buildings on the other side. "'The buildings unfolded and stood up, "'awakening like a herd of beasts under the grey-blue sky. "'The island that was the city settled in the orange sunlight, "'spread open, and stood still "'as misty grey clouds roiled around it. "'The truck-drivers, tired and hungry, "'admired the endless cycle of urban renewal.' The Folding City was divided into three spaces. One side of the Earth was first space, population five million. Their allotted time lasted from six o'clock in the morning to six o'clock the next morning. Then the space went to sleep and the Earth flipped. The other side was shared by second space and third space. Twenty-five million people lived in second space and their allotted time lasted from six o'clock on that second day to ten o'clock at night. Fifty million people lived in third space Allotted the time from 10 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning, at which point first space returned. Time had been carefully divided and parcelled out to separate the populations. Five million enjoyed the use of 24 hours, and 75 million enjoyed the next 24 hours. The structures on two sides of the ground were not even in weight. To remedy the imbalance, the earth was made thicker in first space. "'and extra ballast buried in the soil "'to make up for the missing people and buildings. "'The residents of First Space considered the extra soil "'a natural emblem of their possession of a richer, deeper heritage. "'Lao Dao had lived in Third Space since birth. "'He understood very well the reality of his situation, "'even without Peng Li pointing it out. "'He was a waste worker. "'He had processed trash for twenty-eight years "'and would do so for the foreseeable future.' He had not found the meaning of his existence or the ultimate refuge of cynicism. Instead, he continued to hold on to the humble place assigned to him in life. Lao Tao had been born in Beijing. His father was also a waste worker. His father told him that when Lao Tao was born, his father had just gotten his job, and the family had celebrated for three whole days. His father had been a construction worker— one of millions of other construction workers who had come to Beijing from all over China in search of work. His father and others like him had built this folding city. District by district, they had transformed the old city. Like termites swarming over a wooden house, they had chewed up the wreckage of the past, overturned the earth, and constructed a brand new world. They had swung their hammers and wielded their adzes, keeping their heads down— Brick by brick they had walled themselves off until they could no longer see the sky. Dust had obscured their views, and they had not known the grandeur of their work. Finally, when the completed building stood up before them like a living person, they had scattered in terror, as though they had given birth to a monster. But after they calmed down they realised what an honour it would be to live in such a city in the future, and so they had continued to toil diligently and docilely, to meekly seek out any opportunity to remain in the city. It was said that when the folding city was completed, more than eighty million construction workers had wanted to stay. Ultimately, no more than twenty million were allowed to settle. It had not been easy to get a job at the waste processing station. Although the work only involved sorting trash, so many applied that stringent selection criteria had to be imposed. The desired candidates had to be strong, skilful, discerning, organized, diligent, and unafraid of the stench or difficult environment. Strong-willed, Dao's father had held fast onto the thin reed of opportunity as the tide of humanity surged and then receded around him, until he found himself a survivor on the dry beach. His father had then kept his head down, and laboured away in the acidic, rotten fetter of garbage and crowding for twenty years. "'He had built this city. "'He was also a resident and a decomposer. "'Construction of the folding city "'had been completed two years before Lao Dao's birth. "'He had never been anywhere else "'and had never harboured the desire to go anywhere else. "'He finished elementary school, middle school, high school, "'and took the annual college entrance examination three times, "'failing each time. "'In the end, he became a waste worker, too. "'At the waste processing station he worked for five hours each shift, "'from eleven at night to four in the morning. "'Together with tens of thousands of co-workers "'he mechanically and quickly sorted through the trash, "'picking out recyclable bits from the scraps of life "'from first space and second space "'and tossing them into the processing furnace. "'Every day he faced the trash on the conveyor belt "'flowing past him like a river, "'and he scraped off the leftover food from plastic bowls, "'picked out broken glass bottles, tore off the clean, thin backing from blood-stained sanitary napkins, stuffing it into the recyclables can marked with green lines. This was their lot. To eke out a living by performing the repetitive drudgery as fast as possible, to toil hour after hour for rewards as thin as the wings of cicadas. Twenty million waste workers lived in third space. They were the masters of the night. The other thirty million made a living by selling clothes, food, fuel or insurance but most people understood that the waste workers were the backbone of Third Space's prosperity. Each time he strolled through the neon-bedecked night streets, Laudau thought he was walking under rainbows made of food scraps. He couldn't talk about this feeling with others. The younger generation looked down on the profession of the waste worker. They tried to show off on the dance floors of nightclubs, hoping to find jobs as DJs or dancers. Even working at a clothing store seemed a better choice, their fingers would be touching thin fabric instead of scrabbling through rotting garbage for plastic or metal. The young were no longer so terrified about survival. They cared far more about appearances. Lao Dao didn't despise his work. But when he had gone to second space, he had been terrified of being despised. The previous morning, Lao Dao had snuck his way out of the trash chute with a slip of paper and tried to find the author of the slip based on the address written on it. Second space wasn't far from third space. They were located on the same side of the ground, though they were divided in time. At the change, the buildings of one space folded and retracted into the ground as the buildings of another space extended into the air, segment by segment, using the tops of the buildings of the other space as its foundation. The only difference between the spaces was the density of buildings. "'Lao Dao had to wait a full day and night inside the trash chute "'for the opportunity to emerge as Second Space unfolded. "'Although this was the first time he had been to Second Space, "'he wasn't anxious. "'He only worried about the rotting smell on him. "'Luckily, Qin Qian was a generous soul. "'Perhaps he had been prepared for what sort of person would show up "'since the moment he put that slip of paper inside the bottle. "'Qin Qian was very kind. "'He knew at a glance why Lao Dao had come.' "'He pulled him inside his home, offered him a hot bath and gave him one of his own bathrobes to wear. "'I have to count on you,' Chin-Chan said. "'Chin was a graduate student living in a university-owned apartment. "'He had three roommates, and besides the four bedrooms the apartment had a kitchen and two bathrooms. "'Lao Dao had never taken a bath in such a spacious bathroom, "'and he really wanted to soak for a while and get rid of the smell on his body.' but he was also afraid of getting the bathtub dirty and didn't dare to rub his skin too hard with a washcloth. The jets of bubbles coming out of the bathtub walls startled him, and being dried by hot jets of air made him uncomfortable. After the bath, he picked up the bath from Ch'in Tian and only put it on after hesitating for a while. He laundered his own clothes, as well as a few other shirts casually left in a basin. Business was business, and he didn't want to owe anyone any favours. Qin Tian wanted to send a gift to a woman he liked. They had gotten to know each other from work when Qin Tian had been given the opportunity to go to First Space for an internship with the UN Economic Office, where she was also working. The internship had lasted only a month. Qin told Lao Dao that the young woman was born and bred in First Space with very strict parents. Her father wouldn't allow her to date a boy from Second Space, and that was why he couldn't contact her through regular channels. Jean was optimistic about the future. He was going to apply to the UN's new youth project after graduation, and if he were to be chosen he would be able to go to work in first space. He still had another year of school left before he would get his degree, but he was going crazy pining for her. He had made a rose-shaped locket for her that glowed in the dark. This was the gift he would use to ask for her hand in marriage. I was attending a symposium, you know, the one that discussed the UN's debt situation. You must have heard of it. Anyway, I saw her, and I was like, Ah. I went over right away to talk to her. She was helping the VIPs to their seats, and I didn't know what to say, so I just followed her around. Finally, I pretended that I had to find interpreters, and I asked her to help me. She was so gentle, and her voice was really soft. I had never really asked a girl out, you understand, so I was super nervous. Later, after we started dating, I brought up how we met. Why are you laughing? Yes, we dated. No, I don't think we quite got to that kind of relationship, but, well, we kissed. Qin Tian laughed as well, a bit embarrassed. I'm telling the truth. Don't you believe me? Yes, I guess sometimes even I can't believe it. Do you think she really likes me? I have no idea, Lao Dao said. I've never met her. One of Qin Tian's roommates came over and, smiling, said, Uncle, why are you taking his question so seriously? That's not a real question. He just wants to hear you say, Of course she loves you. You're so handsome. She must be beautiful. I'm not afraid that you'll laugh at me, Ch'in Tian paced back and forth in front of Lao Dao. When you see her, you'll understand the meaning of peerless elegance. Xin Tian stopped, sinking into a reverie. He was thinking of Yi Yan's mouth. Her mouth was perhaps his favourite part of her. So tiny, so smooth, with a full bottom lip that glowed with a natural, healthy pink, making him want to give it a loving bite. Her neck also aroused him. Sometimes it appeared so thin that the tendons showed, but the lines were straight and pretty. The skin was fair and smooth, "'extending down into the collar of her blouse so that his gaze lingered on her second button. "'The first time he tried to kiss her, "'she had moved her lips away shyly. "'He had persisted until she gave in, "'closing her eyes and returning the kiss. "'Her lips had felt so soft, "'and his hands had caressed the curve of her waist and backside "'again and again. "'From that day on, he had lived in the country of longing. "'She was his dream at night,' and also the light he saw when he trembled in his own hand. Qin Tian's roommate was called Zhong Xian, who seemed to relish the opportunity to converse with Lao Tao. Jiang Xian asked Lao Dao about life in Third Space, and mentioned that he actually wanted to live in Third Space for a while. He had been given the advice that if he wanted to climb up the ladder of government administration, some managerial experience in Third Space would be very helpful. Several prominent officials had all started their careers as third-space administrators before being promoted to first-space. If they had stayed in second-space, they wouldn't have gone anywhere and would have spent the rest of their careers as low-level administrative cadres. Zhang Xian's ambition was to eventually enter government service, and he was certain he knew the right path. Still, he wanted to go work at a bank for a couple of years first and earn some quick money. Since Lao Dao seemed non-committal about his plans— Zhang Xian thought Lao Dao disapproved of his careerism. The current government is too inefficient and ossified, he added quickly. Slow to respond to challenges, and I don't see much hope for systematic reform. When I get my opportunity, I'll push for rapid reform. Anyone who's incompetent will be fired. Since Lao Dao still didn't seem to show much reaction, he added, I'll also work to expand the pool of candidates for government service and promotion, including opening up opportunities for candidates from third space. Lao Dao said nothing. It wasn't because he disapproved. Rather, he found it hard to believe Zhang While he talked with Lao Dao, Zhang Xian was also putting on a tie and fixing his hair in front of the mirror. He had on a shirt with light blue stripes, and the tie was a bright blue. He closed his eyes and frowned as the mist of hairspray settled around his face, whistling all the while. Zhang Xian left with his briefcase for his internship at the bank. Qin Xian said he had to get going as well, since he had classes that would last until four in the afternoon. Before he left, he transferred fifty thousand yuan over the net to Lao Dao's account, while Lao Dao watched, and explained that he would transfer the rest after Lao Dao succeeded in his mission. "'Have you been saving up for this for a while?' Lao Dao asked. "'You're a student, so money is probably tight. I can accept less if necessary.' Don't worry about it, I'm on a paid internship with a financial advisory firm. They pay me around a hundred thousand each month. So the total I'm promising you is about two months of my salary? I can afford it. Lao Dao said nothing. He earned the standard salary of ten thousand each month. Please bring back her answer, Chin-Chan said. I'll do my best. Help yourself to the fridge if you get hungry. Just stay put here and wait for the change. Laudau looked outside the window. He couldn't get used to the sunlight, which was a bright white, not the yellow he was used to. The street seemed twice as wide in the sun as what Laudau remembered from third space, and he wasn't sure if that was a visual illusion. The buildings here weren't nearly as tall as buildings in third space. The sidewalks were filled with people walking very fast, and from time to time some trotted and tried to shove their way through the crowd— "'causing those in front of them to begin running as well. "'Everyone seemed to run across intersections. "'The men dressed mostly in western suits, "'while the women wore blouses and short skirts "'with scarves around their necks "'and compact, rigid purses in their hands "'that lent them an air of competence and efficiency. "'The street was filled with cars, "'and as they waited at intersections for the light to change, "'the drivers stuck their heads out of the windows, "'gazing ahead anxiously.' Laudau had never seen so many cars. He was used to the mass-transit maglev packed with passengers whooshing by him. Around noon he heard noises in the hallway outside the apartment. Laudau peeked out of the peephole in the door. The floor of the hallway had transformed into a moving conveyor belt, and bags of trash left at the door of each apartment were shoved onto the conveyor belt to be deposited into the chute at the end. Mist filled the hall, turning into soap bubbles that drifted through the air, "'and then water washed the floor, followed by hot steam. "'A noise from behind Lao Dao startled him. "'He turned around and saw that another of Qin Chan's roommates "'had emerged from his bedroom. "'The young man ignored Lao Dao, his face impassive. "'He went to some machine next to the balcony and pushed some buttons, "'and the machine came to life, popping, whirring, grinding. "'Eventually the noise stopped, "'and Lao Dao smelled something delicious.' The young man took out a piping hot plate of food from the machine and returned to his room. Through the half-open bedroom door, Lao Dao could see that the young man was sitting on the floor in a pile of blankets and dirty socks, and staring at his wall as he ate and laughed, pushing up his glasses from time to time. After he was done eating, he left the plate at his feet, stood up, and began to fight someone invisible as he faced the wall. He struggled, his breathing laboured as he wrestled with the unseen enemy. Lao Dao's last memory of second space was the refined air with which everyone conducted themselves before the change. Looking down from the window of the apartment, everything seemed so orderly that he felt a hint of envy. Starting at a quarter past nine, the stores along the street turned off their lights one after another. Groups of friends, their faces red with drink, said goodbye in front of restaurants. Young couples kissed next to taxicabs. And then everyone returned to their homes, and the world went to sleep. It was ten at night. He returned to his world to go to work. There was no trash chute connecting First Space directly with Third Space. The trash from First Space had to pass through a set of metal gates to be transported into Third Space, and the gates shut as soon as the trash went through. Dao didn't like the idea of having to go over the flipping ground, but he had no choice. As the wind whipped around him, he crawled up the still rotating earth toward first space. He grabbed onto metal structural elements protruding from the soil, struggling to balance his body and calm his heart, until he finally managed to scrabble over the rim of this most distant world. He felt dizzy and nauseated from the intense climb, and forcing down his churning stomach, he remained still on the ground for a while. By the time he got up, the sun had risen. Laudau had never seen such a sight. The sun rose gradually. The sky was a deep and pure azure, with an orange fringe at the horizon, decorated with slanted, thin wisps of cloud. The eaves of a nearby building blocked the sun, and the eaves appeared especially dark while the background was dazzlingly bright. As the sun continued to rise, The blue of the sky faded a little, but seemed even more tranquil and clear. Laodau stood up and ran at the sun. He wanted to catch a trace of that fading golden colour. Silhouettes of waving tree branches broke up the sky. His heart leapt wildly. He had never imagined that a sunrise could be so moving. After a while he slowed down and calmed himself. He was standing in the middle of the street, lined on both sides with tall trees and wide lawns. He looked around, and he couldn't see any buildings at all. Confused, he wondered if he had really reached first space. He pondered the two rows of sturdy ginkgos. He backed up a few steps, and turned to look in the direction he had come from. There was a road sign next to the street. He took out his phone and looked at the map, Although he wasn't authorised to download live maps from First Base, he had downloaded and stored some maps before leaving on this trip. He found where he was as well as where he needed to be. He was standing next to a large open park, and the seam he had emerged from was next to a lake in that park. Laodau ran about a kilometre through the deserted streets until he reached the residential district containing his destination. He hid behind some bushes and observed the beautiful house from a distance. At eight-thirty, Yi Yan came out of the house. She was indeed as elegant as Qin Chan's description had suggested, though perhaps not as pretty. Lao Dao wasn't surprised, however. No woman could possibly be as beautiful as Qin Chan's verbal portrait. He also understood why Qin Chan had spoken so much of her mouth. Her eyes and nose were fairly ordinary. She had a good figure, tall, with delicate bones. She wore a milky white dress with a flowing skirt. Her belt was studded with pearls, and she had on black heels. Lao Dao walked up to her. To avoid startling her, he approached from the front, and bowed deeply when he was still some distance away. She stood still, looking at him in surprise. Lao Dao came closer and explained his mission. He took out the envelope with the locket and Qin Shan's letter. She looked alarmed. "'Please leave,' she whispered. "'I can't talk to you right now.' "Uh, "'I don't really need to talk to you,' Laodau said. "'I just need to give you this letter.' She refused to take it from him, clasping her hands tightly. "'I can't accept this now. Please leave. Really, I'm begging you. All right?' She took out a business card from her purse and handed it to him. "'Come find me at this address at noon.' Lao Dao looked at the card. At the top was the name of a bank. At noon, she said. Wait for me in the underground supermarket. Lao Dao could tell how anxious she was. He nodded, put the card away, and returned to hide behind the bushes. Soon a man emerged from the house and stopped next to her. The man looked to be about Lao Dao's age, or maybe a couple of years younger. Dressed in a dark grey, well fitted suit, he was tall and broad shouldered. Not fat, just thick set. His face was nondescript, round, a pair of glasses, hair neatly combed to one side. The man grabbed Yi Yan around the waist and kissed her on the lips. Yi Yan seemed to give in to the kiss reluctantly. Understanding began to dawn on Lao Tao. A single rider cart arrived in front of the house. The black cart had two wheels and a canopy and resembled an ancient carriage or rickshaw one might see on TV, except there was no horse or person pulling the cart. The cart stopped and dipped forward. Yi Yan stepped in, sat down, and arranged the skirt of the dress neatly around her knees. The cart straightened and began to move at a slow, steady pace, as though pulled by some invisible horse. After Yi Yan left, a driverless car arrived, and the man got in owl paced in place. He felt something was pushing at his throat, but he couldn't articulate it. Standing in the sun, he closed his eyes. The clean, fresh air filled his lungs and provided some measure of comfort. A moment later he was on his way. The address Yi Yan had given him was to the east, a little more than three kilometres away. There were very few people in the pedestrian lane, and only scattered cars sped by in a blur on the eight-lane avenue. Occasionally, Well-dressed women passed Lao Dao in two-wheeled carts. The passengers adopted such graceful postures that it was as though they were in some fashion show. No one paid any attention to Lao Dao. The trees swayed in the breeze, and the air in their shade seemed suffused with the perfume from the elegant women. Yi Yan's office was in the Xi commercial district. There were no skyscrapers at all. Only a few low buildings scattered around a large park. The buildings seemed isolated from each other, but were really parts of a single compound connected via underground passages. Laudao found the supermarket. He was early. As soon as he came in, a small shopping cart began to follow him around. Every time he stopped by a shelf, the screen on the cart displayed the names of the goods on the shelf, their description, customer reviews, and comparison with other brands in the same category. All merchandise in the supermarket seemed to be labelled in foreign languages. The packaging for all the food products was very refined, and small cakes and fruits were enticingly arranged on plates for customers. He didn't dare to touch anything, keeping his distance as though they were dangerous, exotic animals. There seemed to be no guards or clerks in the whole market. More customers appeared before noon. Some men in suits came into the market, grabbed sandwiches and waved them at the scanner next to the door before hurrying out. No one paid any attention to Lao Dao as he waited in an obscure corner near the door. Yi Yan appeared, and Lao Dao went up to her. Yi Yan glanced around, and without saying anything, led Lao Dao to a small restaurant next door. Two small robots dressed in plaid skirts greeted them, took Yi Yan's purse, brought them to a booth, and handed them menus. Yi Yan pressed a few spots on the menu to make her selection, and handed the menu back to the robot. The robot turned and glided smoothly on its wheels to the back. Yi Yan and Lao Dao sat mutely across from each other. Lao Dao took out the envelope. Yi Yan still didn't take it from him. Can you let me explain? Lao Dao pushed the envelope across the table. Please take this first. Yi Yan pushed it back. Can you let me explain first? You don't need to explain anything, Lao Dao said. I didn't write the letter, I'm just the messenger. But you have to go back and give him an answer. Yi Yan looked down. The little robot returned with two plates, one for each of them. On each plate were two slices of some kind of red sashimi, arranged like flower petals. Yi Yan didn't pick up her chopsticks, and neither did Lao Dao. The envelope rested between the two plates, and neither touched it. I didn't betray him. When I met him last year I was already engaged. "'I didn't lie to him or conceal the truth from him on purpose.
2: "'Well,
0: maybe I did lie, but it was because he assumed and guessed. "'He saw Wu Wang come to pick me up once, "'and he asked me if he was my father. "'I I couldn't answer him, you know. "'It was just too embarrassing. "'I... Yi Yan couldn't speak any more.' Dao waited a while. "'I'm not interested in what happened between you two. "'All I care about is that you take the letter.' Yi'an kept her head down, and then she looked up. "'After you go back, can you help me by not telling him everything?' "'Why?' "'I don't want him to think that I was just playing with his feelings. "'I do like him, really. "'I feel very conflicted. "'None of this is my concern. "'Please, I'm begging you, I really do like him.' Lao Dao was silent for a while. "'But you got married in the end?' "'Wu Wen was very good to me. "'We'd been together several years. "'He knew my parents, and we'd been engaged for a long time. "'Also, I'm three years older than Qin Chan, "'and I was afraid he wouldn't like that. "'Qin Chan thought I was an intern like him, "'and I admit that was my fault for not telling him the truth.' "'I don't know why I said I was an intern at first, "'and then it became harder and harder to correct him. "'I never thought he would be serious.' "'Slowly, Yi Yan told Lao Dao her story. "'She was actually an assistant to the bank's president "'and had already been working there for two years "'at the time she met Qin Chan. "'She had been sent to the UN for training "'and was helping out at the symposium. "'In fact, her husband earned so much money "'that she didn't really need to work, "'but she didn't like the idea of being at home all day.' She worked only half-days and took a half-time salary. The rest of the day was hers to do with as she pleased, and she liked learning new things and meeting new people. She really had enjoyed the months she spent training at the UN. She told Lao Tao that there were many wives like her who worked half-time. As a matter of fact, after she got off work at noon, another wealthy wife worked as the President's assistant in the afternoon. She told Lao Dao that though she had not told Chin Chan the truth, her heart was honest. And so she spooned a serving of the new hot dish onto Lao Tao's plate. Can you please not tell him just temporarily? Please give me a chance to explain to him myself. Lao Dao didn't pick up his chopsticks. He was very hungry, but he felt that he could not eat this food. Then I'd be lying too, Lao Dao said. Yi'an opened her purse, took out her wallet and retrieved five ten thousand yuan bills. She pushed them across the table toward Lao Dao. Please accept this token of my appreciation. Lao Dao was stunned. He had never seen bills with such large denominations or needed to use them. Almost subconsciously he stood up, angry. The way Yan had taken out the money seemed to suggest that she had been anticipating an attempt from him to blackmail her— "'and he could not accept that. "'This is what they think of 3rd spaces. "'He felt that if he took her money "'he would be selling Qin-Chan out. "'It was true that he really wasn't Qin-Chan's friend, "'but he still thought of it as a kind of betrayal. "'Lao Dao wanted to grab the bills, "'throw them on the ground, and walk away. "'But he couldn't. "'He looked at the money again. "'The five thin notes were spread on the table "'like a broken fan.' He could sense the power they had on him. They were baby blue in colour, distinct from the brown one thousand yuan note and the red one hundred yuan note. These bills looked deeper, most distant somehow, like a kind of seduction. Several times he wanted to stop looking at them and leave, but he couldn't. She continued to rummage through her purse, taking everything out until she finally found another fifty thousand yuan from an inner pocket and placed them together with the other bills. "'This is all I have. Please take it and help me.' She paused. "'Look, the reason I don't want him to know is because I'm not sure what I'm going to do. It's possible that someday I'll have the courage to be with him.' Dao looked at the ten notes spread out on the table and then looked up at her. She sensed that she didn't believe what she was saying. Her voice was hesitant, belying her words. She was just delaying everything to the future, so that she wouldn't be embarrassed now. She was unlikely to ever elope with Qin-Chan, but she also didn't want him to despise her. Thus she wanted to keep alive the possibility, so that she could feel better about herself. Lao-Dao could see that she was lying to herself, but he wanted to lie to himself, too. He told himself, I have no duty to Qin Chan. All he asked was for me to deliver his message to her, and I've done that. The money on the table now represents a new commission, a commitment to keep a secret. He waited, and then told himself, Perhaps some day she really will get together with Chin Chan, and in that case I'll have done a good deed by keeping silent. Besides, I need to think about Tang Tang. "'Why should I get myself all worked up about strangers "'instead of thinking about Tang Tang's welfare?' "'He felt calmer. "'He realised that his fingers were already touching the money. "'This is too much.' "'He wanted to make himself feel better. "'I can't accept so much.' "'It's no big deal.' "'She stuffed the bills into his hand. "'I earn this much in a week. Don't worry.' What What do you want me to tell him? Tell him that I can't be with him now, but I truly like him. I'll write you a note to bring him. Yi Yan found a notepad in her purse. It had a picture of a peacock on the cover, and the edges of the pages were golden. She ripped out a page and began to write. Her handwriting looked like a string of slanted goods. As Lao Tao left the restaurant, he glanced back. Yi Yan was sitting in the booth, gazing up at a painting on the wall. She looked so elegant and refined, as though she was never going to leave. He squeezed the bills in his pocket. He despised himself, but he wanted to hold on to the money. Dao left Zidane and returned the way he had come. He felt exhausted. The pedestrian lane was lined with a row of weeping willows on one side, and a row of Chinese parasol trees on the other side. It was late spring, and everything was a lush green. The afternoon sun warmed his stiff face and brightened his empty heart. He was back at the park from this morning. There were many people in the park now, and the two rows of ginkgos looked stately and luscious. Black cars entered the park from time to time, and most of the people in the park wore either well-fitted western suits made of quality fabric, or dark-coloured, stylish Chinese suits. But everyone gave off a haughty air. "'There were also some foreigners.' "'Some of the people conversed in small groups. "'Others greeted each other at a distance "'and then laughed as they got close enough "'to shake hands and walk together.' Dao hesitated, trying to decide where to go. "'There weren't that many people in the street "'and he would draw attention if he just stood here, "'but he would look out of place in any public area. "'He wanted to go back into the park, "'get close to the fissure and hide in some corner to take a nap. "'He felt very sleepy.' but he dared not sleep on the street. He noticed that the cars entering the park didn't seem to need to stop, and so he tried to walk into the park as well. Only when he was close to the park gate did he notice that two robots were patrolling the area. While cars and other pedestrians passed their sentry line with no problems, the robots beeped as soon as Dao approached and turned on their wheels to head for him. In the tranquil afternoon the noise they made seemed especially loud. The eyes of everyone nearby turned to him. He panicked, uncertain if it was his shabby clothes that alerted the robots. He tried to whisper to the robots, claiming that his suit was left inside the park, but the robots ignored him while they continued to beep and to flash the red lights over their heads. People strolling inside the park stopped and looked at him as though looking at a thief or eccentric person. Soon three men emerged from a nearby building and ran over. Lao Dao's heart was in his throat. He wanted to run, but it was too late. What's going on? the man in the lead asked loudly. Lao Dao couldn't think of anything to say, and he rubbed his pants compulsively. The man in the front was in his thirties. He came up to Lao Dao and scanned him with a silver disc about the size of a button, moving his hand around Lao Dao's person. He looked at Lao Dao suspiciously, as though trying to pry open his shell with a can opener. There's no record of this man. The man gestured at the older man behind him. Bring him in. Loudow started to run away from the park. The two robots silently dashed ahead of him and grabbed onto his legs. Their arms were cuffs and locked easily about his ankles. He tripped and almost fell, but the robots held him up. His arms swung through the air helplessly. Why are you trying to run? The younger man stepped up and glared at him. His tone was now severe. I, I. Lao Dao's head felt like a droning beehive; he couldn't think. The two robots lifted Lao Dao by the legs and deposited his feet onto platforms next to their wheels. Then they drove towards the nearest building in parallel, carrying Lao Dao. Their movements were so steady, so smooth, so synchronized that from a distance, it appeared as if Lao Dao was skating along on a pair of rollerblades. "'like Nezha riding on his windfire wheels.' "'Laodau felt utterly helpless. "'He was angry with himself for being so careless. "'How could he think such a crowded place "'would be without security measures? "'He berated himself for being so drowsy "'that he could commit such a stupid mistake. "'It's all over now,' he thought. "'Not only am I not going to get my money, "'I'm also going to jail.' The robots followed a narrow path and reached the back door of the building, where they stopped. The three men followed behind. The younger man seemed to be arguing with the older man over what to do with Laodau, but they spoke so softly that Laodau couldn't hear the details. After a while, the older man came up and unlocked the robots from Laodau's legs. Then he grabbed him by the arm and took him upstairs. Lao Dao sighed. He resigned himself to his fate. The man brought him into a room. It looked like a hotel room, very spacious, bigger even than the living room in Xin Chan's apartment and about twice the size of his own rental unit. The room was decorated in a dark shade of golden brown, with a king-sized bed in the middle. The wall at the head of the bed showed abstract patterns of shifting colours. Translucent white curtains covered the French window, and in front of the window sat a small circular table and two comfortable chairs. Lao Dao was anxious, unsure of who the older man was and what he wanted. "'Sit, sit!' The older man clapped him on the shoulder and smiled. "'Everything's fine!' Dao looked at him suspiciously. "'You're from Third Space, aren't you?' The older man pulled him over to the chairs and gestured for him to sit. "'How do you know that?' Dao couldn't lie. "'From your pants!' "'the older man pointed at the waist of his pants. "'You never even cut off the label. "'This brand is only sold in third space. "'I remember my mother buying them for my father when I was little. "'Sir, you're—you don't need to sir me. "'I don't think I'm much older than you are. "'How old are you? I'm 52 Forty-eight. "'See, just older by four years.' "'He paused, and then added— "'My name is Ger Da Ping. "'Why don't you just call me Lao Ger? "'Lao Dao relaxed a little. "'Lao Ger took off his jacket and moved his arms about "'to stretch out the stiff muscles. "'Then he filled a glass with hot water from a spigot in the wall "'and handed it to Lao Dao. "'He had a long face and the corners of his eyes, "'the ends of his eyebrows and his cheeks drooped. "'Even his glasses seemed about to fall off the end of his nose. "'His hair was naturally a bit curly,' and piled loosely on top of his head. As he spoke, his eyebrows bounced up and down comically. He made some tea for himself, and asked Lao Dao if he wanted any. Lao Dao shook his head. "'I was originally from Third Space as well,' said Lao Ge. "'We're practically from the same hometown, so you don't need to be so careful with me. I still have a bit of authority, and I won't give you up.' Lao Dao let out a long sigh congratulating himself silently for his good luck. He recounted for lao Ge his experience of going to second space and then coming to first space, but omitted the details of what Yi Yan had said. He simply told lao Ge that he had successfully delivered the message and was just waiting for the change to head home. lao Ge also shared his own story with Lao-Dao. He had grown up in third space, and his parents had worked as deliverymen. When he was fifteen he entered a military school and then joined the army. He worked as a radar technician in the army, and because he worked hard, demonstrated good technical skills, and had some good opportunities, he was eventually promoted to an administrative position in the radar department with the rank of Brigadier General. Since he didn't come from a prominent family, that rank was about as high as he could go in the army. He then retired from the army and joined an agency in first base, responsible for logistical support for government enterprises, organising meetings, arranging travel, coordinating various social events. The job was blue-collar in nature, but since his work involved government officials, and he had to coordinate and manage, he was allowed to live in First Space. There were a considerable number of people in First Space like him, chefs, doctors, secretaries, housekeepers, skilled blue-collar workers needed to support the lifestyle of First Space. His agency had run many important social events and functions, and Lauger was its director. Lauger might have been self-deprecating in describing himself as a blue-collar, but Lao Dao understood that anyone who could work and live in first base had extraordinary skills. Even a chef here was likely a master of his art. Lauger must be very talented to have risen here from third space after a technical career in the army. "'You might as well take a nap,' Lauger said. "'I'll take you to get something to eat this evening.' Lao Dao still couldn't believe his good luck, and he felt a bit uneasy. However, he couldn't resist the call of the white sheets and stuffed pillows, and he fell asleep almost right away. When he woke up it was dark outside. Lao Girl was combing his hair in front of the mirror. He showed Lao Dao a suit lying on the sofa and told him to change. Then he pinned a tiny badge with a faint red glow to Lao Dao's lapel. A new identity. The large open lobby downstairs was crowded. Some kind of presentation seemed to have just finished, and attendees conversed in small groups. At one end of the lobby were the open doors leading to the banquet hall. The thick doors were lined with burgundy leather. The lobby was filled with small standing tables. Each table was covered by a white tablecloth tied around the bottom with a golden bow, and the vase in the middle of each table held a lily. Crackers and dried fruits were set out next to the vases for snacking and a long table to the side offered wine and coffee. Guests mingled and conversed among the tables, while small robots holding serving trays shuttled between their legs, collecting empty glasses. Forcing himself to be calm, Lao Dao followed Lao Ghe and walked through the convivial scene into the banquet hall. He saw a large hanging banner, The Folding City at Fifty. "'What is this?' Lao Tao asked a celebration lao go was walking about and examining the setup Xiao jiao come here a minute i want you to check the table signs one more time i don't trust robots for things like this sometimes i don't know how to be flexible lao dao saw that the banquet hall was filled with large round tables with fresh flower centerpieces the scene seemed unreal to him He stood in a corner and gazed up at the giant chandelier as though some dazzling reality was hanging over him, and he was but an insignificant presence at its periphery. There was a lectern set up on the dais at front, and, behind it, the background was an ever-shifting series of images of Beijing. The photographs were perhaps taken from an airplane and captured the entirety of the city. The soft light of dawn and dusk, the dark purple and deep blue sky, clouds racing across the sky, the moon rising from a corner, "'the sun setting behind a roof. "'The aerial shots revealed the magnificence "'of Beijing's ancient symmetry, "'the modern expanse of brick courtyards "'and large green parks that had extended to the Sixth Ring Road, "'Chinese-style theatres, "'Japanese-style museums, "'minimalist concert halls. "'And then there were shots of the city as a whole, "'shots that included both faces of the city during the change, "'the earth flipping,' revealing the other side studded with skyscrapers with sharp, straight contours, men and women energetically rushing to work, neon signs lighting up the night, blotting out the stars, towering apartment buildings, cinemas, nightclubs full of beautiful people. But there were no shots of where Lao Dao worked. He stared at the screen intently, uncertain if they might show pictures during the construction of the Folding City. He hoped to get a glimpse of his father's era. When he was little, his father had often pointed to buildings outside the window, and told him stories that started with, "'Back then, we—' An old photograph had hung on the wall of their cramped home, and in the picture his father was laying bricks, a task his father had performed thousands, or perhaps hundreds of thousands of times. He had seen that picture so many times that he thought he was sick of it, and yet, at this moment, he hoped to see a scene of workers laying bricks, even if for just a few seconds.' He was lost in his thoughts. This was also the first time he had seen what the change looked like from a distance. He didn't remember sitting down, and he didn't know when others had sat down next to him. A man began to speak at the lectern, but Lao Dao wasn't even listening for the first few minutes. Advantageous for the development of the service sector. The service economy is dependent on population size and density. Currently, the service industry of our city is responsible for more than 85% of our GDP— in line with the general characteristics of world-class metropolises, the other important sectors are the green economy and the recycling economy. Lao Dao was paying full attention now. Green economy and recycling economy were often mentioned at the waste processing station, and the phrases were painted on the walls in characters taller than a man. He looked closer at the speaker on the dais, an old man with silvery hair, though he appeared hale and energetic. All trash is now sorted and processed and we've achieved our goals for energy conservation and pollution reduction ahead of schedule. We've developed a systematic, large-scale recycling economy in which all the rare earth and precious metals extracted from e-waste are reused in manufacturing, and even the plastics' recycling rate exceeds 80%. The recycling stations are directly connected to the reprocessing plants. Lao Dao knew of a distant relative who worked at a reprocessing plant in the techno-park far from the city. The technopark was just acres and acres of industrial buildings, and he heard that all the plants over there were very similar. The machines pretty much ran on their own, and there were very few workers. At night, when the workers got together, they felt like the last survivors of some dwindling tribe in a desolate wilderness. He drifted off again. Only the wild applause at the end of the speech pulled him out of his chaotic thoughts and back to reality. He also applauded, though he didn't know what for he watched the speaker descend the dais and return to his place of honour at the head-table. Everyone's eyes were on him. Lao Dao saw Wu Wan, Yi Yan's husband. Wu Wan was at the table next to the head-table. As the old man who had given the speech sat down, Wu Wan walked over to offer a toast, and then he seemed to say something that got the old man's attention. The old man got up and walked with Wu Wan out of the banquet hall, Almost subconsciously, a curious Lao-Dao also got up and followed them. He didn't know where Lao-Gur had gone. Robots emerged to serve the dishes for the banquets. Lao-Dao emerged from the banquet hall and was back in the reception lobby. He eavesdropped on the other two from a distance and only caught snippets of conversation. "'There are many advantages to this proposal,' said Wu-Wen. "'Yes, I've seen their equipment.' "'Automatic waste processing.' "'They use a chemical solvent to dissolve and digest everything "'and then extract reusable materials in bulk. "'Clean and very economical. "'Would you please give it some consideration?' "'Wu-Wen kept his voice low, but Lao-Dao clearly heard waste processing. "'He moved closer. "'The old man with the silvery hair had a complex expression. "'Even after Wu-Wen was finished, he waited a while before speaking.' You're certain that the solvent is safe? No toxic pollution? Wu Wen hesitated. The current version still generates a bit of pollution, but I'm sure they can reduce it to the minimum very quickly. Lao Dao got even closer. The old man shook his head, staring at Wu Wen. Things aren't that simple. If I approve your project and it's implemented, there will be major consequences. Your process won't need workers. So what are you going to do with the tens of millions of people who will lose their jobs? The old man turned away and returned to the banquet hall. Wu Wen remained in place, stunned. A man who had been by the old man's side, a secretary, perhaps, came up to Wu Wen and said sympathetically, "You might as well go back and enjoy the meal. I'm sure you understand how this works. Employment is the number one concern." Do you really think no one has suggested similar technology in the past? Loudow understood vaguely that what they were talking about had to do with him, but he wasn't sure whether it was good news or bad. Wu-Wern's expression shifted through confusion, annoyance, and then resignation. Loudow suddenly felt some sympathy for him. He had his moments of weakness as well. The secretary suddenly noticed Loudow. "'Are you new here?' he asked. Laudow was startled. "'Uh, um, uh... "'What's your name? "'How come I wasn't informed about a new member of the staff?' "'Laudow's heart beat wildly. "'He didn't know what to say. "'He pointed to the badge on his lapel "'as though hoping the badge would speak or otherwise help him out. "'But the badge displayed nothing. "'His palms sweated. "'The secretary stared at him, "'his look growing more suspicious by the second. He grabbed another worker in the lobby, and the worker said he didn't know who Laudao was. The secretary's face was now severe and dark. He grabbed Laudao with one hand and punched the keys on his communicator with the other hand. Laudao's heart threatened to jump out of his throat, but just then he saw Lau Lauguer rushed over and with a smooth gesture hung up the secretary's communicator. Smiling, he greeted the secretary and bowed deeply. He explained that he was short-handed for the occasion and had to ask for a colleague from another department to help out tonight. The secretary seemed to believe Lauger and returned to the banquet hall. Lauger brought Lao Dao back to his own room to avoid any further risks. If anyone really bothered to look into Lao Dao's identity, they'd discover the truth, and even Lauger wouldn't be able to protect him. I guess you're not fated to enjoy the banquet. Lauger laughed. Just wait here. I'll get you some food later. Lao Dao lay down on the bed and fell asleep again. He replayed the conversation between Wu Wen and the old man in his head. Automatic waste processing. What would that look like? Would that be a good thing, or bad? The next time he woke up, he smelled something delicious. Laoga had set out a few dishes on the small circular table, and was taking the last plate out of the warming oven on the wall. Laugher also brought over a half-bottle of Baijiu, and filled two glasses. There was a table where they only had two people, and they left early, so most of the dishes weren't even touched. I brought some back. It's not much, but maybe you'll enjoy the taste. Hopefully you won't hold it against me that I'm offering you leftovers. Not at all, Lao Dao said. I'm grateful that I get to eat at all. These look wonderful. They must be very expensive, right?' The food at the banquet is prepared by the kitchen here and not for sale, so I don't know how much they'd cost in a restaurant. Lauge already started to eat, but nothing special. If I had to guess, maybe ten thousand, twenty thousand? A couple might cost thirty, forty thousand. Not more than that. After a couple of bites, Lau Dao realised how hungry he was. He was used to skipping meals, and sometimes he could last a whole day without eating. His body would shake uncontrollably then, but he had learned to endure it. But now the hunger was overwhelming. He wanted to chew quicker because his teeth couldn't seem to catch up to the demands of his empty stomach. He tried to wash the food down with Baiju, which was very fragrant and didn't sting his throat at all. Laogha ate leisurely, and smiled as he watched Lao Dao eat. Oh! Now that the pangs of hunger had finally been dulled a bit, Lao Dao remembered the earlier conversation. Who was the man giving the speech? He seemed a bit familiar. "'He's always on TV,' Lauger said. "'That's my boss. "'He's a man with real power, "'in charge of everything having to do with city operations. "'They were talking about automatic waste processing earlier. "'Do you think they'll really do it?' "'Hard to say.' Lauger sipped the baijiu and let out a burp. "'I suspect not. "'You have to understand why they went with manual processing in the first place.' Back then, the situation here was similar to Europe at the end of the 20th century. The economy was growing, but so was unemployment. Printing money didn't solve the problem. The economy refused to obey the Phillips curve. He saw that Laudau looked completely lost and laughed. Never mind, you wouldn't understand these things anyway. He clinked glasses with Laodau and the two drained their Baidu and refilled the glasses. I'll just stick to unemployment, I'm sure you understand the concept, Lauger continued. As the cost of labour goes up and the cost of machinery goes down, at some point it'll be cheaper to use machines than people. With the increase in productivity, the GDP goes up. But so does unemployment. What do you do? Enact policies to protect the workers? Better welfare? The more you try to protect workers, the more you increase the cost of labour and make it less attractive for employers to hire people. If you go outside the city now to the industrial districts, There's almost no one working in those factories. It's the same thing with farming. Large commercial farms contain thousands and thousands of acres of land and everything is automated so there's no need for people. This kind of automation is absolutely necessary if you want to grow your economy. That was how we caught up to Europe and America, remember? Scaling. The problem is, now you've gotten the people off the land and out of the factories, what are you going to do with them? In Europe, they went with the path of forcefully reducing everyone's working hours and thus increasing employment opportunities. But this saps the vitality of the economy, you understand. The best way is to reduce the time a certain portion of the population spends living and then find ways to keep them busy. Do you get it? Right, shove them into the night. There's another advantage to this approach. The effects of inflation almost can't be felt at the bottom of the social pyramid. Those who can get loans and afford the interest spend all the money you print. The GDP goes up, but the cost of basic necessities does not, and most of the people won't even be aware of it. Laudao listened, only half grasping what was being said, but he could detect something cold and cruel in Laogao's speech. Laogao's manner was still jovial, but he could tell Laogao's joking tone was just an attempt to dull the edge of his words and not hurt him. Not too much. "'Yes, it sounds a bit cold,' Gur admitted. "'But it's the truth. "'I'm not trying to defend this place just because I live here. "'But after so many years, you grow a bit numb. "'There are many things in life we can't change, "'and all we can do is accept and endure.' Laudau was finally beginning to understand Laugher, but he didn't know what to say. Both became a bit drunk. They began to reminisce about the past, the foods they ate as children, schoolyard fights, Lao-Gur had loved hot and sour rice noodles and stinky tofu. These were not available in First Space, and he missed them dearly. Lao-Gur talked about his parents, who still lived in Third Space. He couldn't visit them often, because each trip required him to apply and obtain special approval, which was very burdensome. He mentioned that there were some officially sanctioned ways to go between Third Space and First Space, and a few select people did make the trip often. He hoped that Lao-Dao could bring a few things back to his parents, because he felt regret and sorrow over his inability to be by their side and care for them. Lao Dao talked about his lonely childhood. In the dim lamplight he recalled his childhood spent alone wandering at the edge of the landfill. It was now late night. Lao Gur had to go check up on the event downstairs and he took Lao Dao with him. The dance party downstairs was about to be over, and tired looking men and women emerged in twos and threes. Lao Gur said that entrepreneurs seemed to have the most energy and often danced until the morning. The deserted banquet hall after the party looked messy and grubby, like a woman who took off her makeup after a long, tiring day. Lao-Gur watched the robots trying to clean up the mess, and laughed. This is the only moment when first space shows its true face. Lao-Dao checked the time. Three hours until the change. He sorted his thoughts. It's time to leave. The silver-haired speaker returned to his office after the banquet to deal with some paperwork, and then got on a video call with Europe. At midnight he felt tired. He took off his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. It was finally time to go home. He worked till midnight on most days. The phone rang. He picked up. It was his secretary. The research group for the conference had reported something troubling. Someone had discovered an error with one of the figures used in the pre-printed conference declaration— and the research group wanted to know if they should reprint the declaration. The old man immediately approved the request. This was very important, and they had to get it right. He asked who was responsible for this, and the secretary told him that it was Director Wu Wen. The old man sat down on his sofa and took a nap. Around four in the morning the phone rang again. The printing was going a bit slower than expected, and they estimated it would take another hour. He got up and looked outside the window. All was silent. He could see Orion's bright stars twinkling against the night sky. The stars of Orion were reflected in the mirror-like surface of the lake. Lao Dao was sitting on the shore of the lake, waiting for the change. He gazed at the park at night, realising that this was perhaps the last time he would see a sight such as this. He wasn't sad or nostalgic. This was a beautiful, peaceful place, but it had nothing to do with him. He wasn't envious or resentful. He just wanted to remember the experience. There were few lights at night here, nothing like the flashing neon that turned the streets of third space bright as day. The buildings of the city seemed to be asleep, breathing evenly and calmly. At five in the morning the secretary called again to say that the declaration had been reprinted and bound, but the documents were still in the print shop and they wanted to know if they should delay the scheduled change. The old man made the decision right away. Of course they had to delay it. At forty minutes past the hour, the printed declarations were brought to the conference site, but they still had to be stuffed into about three thousand individual folders. Lao Dao saw the faint light of dawn. At this time during the year, the sun wouldn't have risen by six, but it was possible to see the sky brightening near the horizon. He was prepared. He looked at his phone. Only a couple more minutes until six. But strangely, there were no signs of the change. Maybe in first space even the change happens more smoothly and steadily. Ten after six, the last copy of the declaration was stuffed into its folder. The old man let out a held breath. He gave the order to initiate the change. Loudow noticed that the earth was finally moving. He stood up and shook the numbness out of his limbs. Carefully, he stepped up to the edge of the widening fissure, As the earth on both sides of the crack lifted up, he clambered over the edge, tested for purchase with his feet, and climbed down. The ground began to turn. At twenty after six, the secretary called again with an emergency. Director Wu Wen had carelessly left a data key with important documents behind at the banquet hall. He was worried that the cleaning robots might remove it, and he had to go to retrieve it right away. The old man was annoyed but he gave the order to stop the change and reverse course. Loudow was climbing slowly over the cross-section of the earth when everything stopped with a jolt. After a moment, the earth started moving again, but now in reverse. The fissure was closing up. Terrified, he climbed up as fast as he dared. Scrabbling over the soil with hands and feet, he had to be careful with his movements. The seam closed faster than he had expected. Just as he reached the top, the two sides of the crack came together, One of his lower legs was caught. Although the soil gave enough to not crush his leg or break his bones, it held him fast, and he couldn't extricate himself despite several attempts. Sweat beaded on his forehead from terror and pain. Has he been discovered? Dao lay prostrate on the ground, listening. He seemed to hear steps hurrying toward him. He imagined that soon the police would arrive and catch him. "'They might cut off his leg and toss him in jail with a stump. "'He couldn't tell when his identity had been revealed. "'As he lay on the grass he felt the chill of morning dew. "'The damp air seeped through collar and cuffs, "'keeping him alert and making him shiver. "'He silently counted the seconds, "'hoping against hope that this was but a technical malfunction. "'He tried to plan for what to say if he was caught. "'Maybe he should mention how honestly and diligently "'he had toiled for twenty-eight years,' "'and try to buy a bit of sympathy. "'He didn't know if he would be prosecuted in court. "'Fate loomed before his eyes. "'Fate now pressed into his chest. "'Of everything he had experienced during the last forty-eight hours, "'the episode that had made the deepest impression "'was the conversation with Lauger at dinner. "'He felt that he had approached some aspect of truth, "'and perhaps that was why he could catch a glimpse of the outline of fate.' the outline was too distant, too cold, too out of reach. He didn't know what was the point of knowing the truth. If he could see some things clearly, but was still powerless to change them, what good did that do? In his case, he couldn't even see clearly. Fate was like a cloud that momentarily took on some recognisable shape, and by the time he tried to get a closer look, the shape was gone. He knew that he was nothing more than a figure. He was but an ordinary person. One out of 51,280,000 others just like him. And if they didn't need that much precision and spoke of only 50 million, he was but a rounding error. The same as if he had never existed. He wasn't even as significant as dust. He grabbed onto the grass. At 6.30, Wu Wen retrieved his data key. At 6.40, Wu Wen was back in his home. At six-forty-five, the white-haired old man finally lay down on the small bed in his office, exhausted. The order had been issued, and the wheels of the world began to turn slowly. Transparent covers extended over the coffee-table and the desk, securing everything in place. The bed released a cloud of soporific gas and extended rails on all sides. Then it rose into the air. As the ground and everything on the ground turned, the bed would remain level, like a floating cradle. The change had started again. After thirty minutes spent in despair, Lao Dao saw a trace of hope again. The ground was moving. He pulled his leg out as soon as the fissure opened and then returned to the arduous climb over the cross-section as soon as the opening was wide enough. He moved with even more care than before. As circulation returned to his numb leg, his calf itched and ached as though he was being bitten by thousands of ants. Several times he almost fell. The pain was intolerable, and he had to bite his fist to stop from screaming. He fell. He got up. He fell again. He got up again. He struggled with all his strength and skill to maintain his footing over the rotating earth. He couldn't even remember how he had climbed up the stairs. He only remembered fainting as soon as Chin Chian opened the door to his apartment. Lao Dao slept for ten hours in second space. Chin Chian found a classmate in medical school to help dress his wound. He suffered massive damage to his muscles and soft tissue but luckily no bones were broken. However, he was going to have some difficulty walking for a while. After waking up, Lao Dao handed Yi Yan's letter to Qin Chan. He watched as Qin Chan read the letter, his face filling up with happiness as well as loss. He said nothing. He knew that Qin Chan would be immersed in this remote hope for a long time. Returning to Third Space, Lao Dao felt as though he had been travelling for a month, The city was waking up slowly. Most of the residents had slept soundly, and now they picked up their lives from where they had left off the previous cycle. No one would notice that Lao Dao had been away. As soon as the vendors along the pedestrian lane opened shop, he sat down at a plastic table and ordered a bowl of chow mein. For the first time in his life, Lao Dao asked for shredded pork to be added to the noodles. Just one time, he thought, a reward. Then he went to Lauger's home and delivered the two boxes of medicine Lauger had brought for his parents. The two elders were no longer mobile, and a young woman with a dull demeanour lived with them as a caretaker. Limping, he slowly returned to his own rental unit. The hallway was noisy and chaotic, filled with the commotion of a typical morning, brushing teeth, flushing toilets, arguing families. All around him were dishevelled hair and half-dressed bodies. He had to wait a while for the elevator. As soon as he got off at his floor he heard loud, arguing noises. It was the two girls who lived next door, Lan Lan and Arbei, arguing with the old lady who collected rent. All the units in the building were public housing, but the residential district had an agent who collected rent, and each building, even each floor, had a sub-agent. The old lady was a long-term resident. She was thin, shriveled, and lived by herself. Her son had left, and nobody knew where he was. She always kept her door shut and didn't interact much with the other residents. Lan Lan and Abe had moved in recently, and they worked at a clothing store. Abe was shouting while Lan Lan was trying to hold her back. Abe turned and shouted at Lan Lan. Lan Lan began to cry. "'We all have to follow the lease, don't we?' The old lady pointed at the scrolling text on the screen mounted on the wall. "'Don't you dare accuse me of lying!' Do you understand what a lease is? It's right here in black and white. In autumn and winter there's a 10% surcharge for heat. Huh! Abe lifted her chin at the old lady while combing her hair forcefully. Do you think we are going to be fooled by such a basic trick? When we're at work you turn off the heat. Then you charge us for the electricity we haven't been using so you can keep the extra for yourself. Do you think we were born yesterday? Every day when we get home after work the place is cold as an ice cellar. Just because we're new, you think you can take advantage of us. Arbe's voice was sharp and brittle, and it cut through the air like a knife. Lao Dao looked at Arbe, at her young, determined, angry face, and thought she was very beautiful. Arbei and Lan Lan often helped him by taking care of Tang Tang when he wasn't home, and sometimes even made porridge for him. He wanted Arbe to stop shouting, to forget these trivial things and stop arguing. He wanted to tell her that a girl should sit elegantly and quietly. "'Cover her knees with her skirt and smile so that her pretty teeth showed. "'That was how you got others to love you. "'But he knew that was not what Abe and Lan Lan needed.' "'He took out a ten-thousand yuan bill from his inner pocket "'and handed it to the old lady. "'His hand trembled from weakness. "'The old lady was stunned, and so were Abe and Lan Lan. "'He didn't want to explain. "'He waved at them and returned to his home. Tang Tang was just waking up in her crib, and she rubbed her sleepy eyes. He gazed into Tang Tang's face, and his exhausted heart softened. He remembered how he had found Tang Tang at first in front of the waste-processing station and her dirty, tear-stained face. He had never regretted picking her up that day. She laughed and smacked her lips. He thought that he was fortunate. Although he was injured— He hadn't been caught, and managed to bring back money. He didn't know how long it would take Tang-Tang to learn to dance and sing, and become an elegant young lady. He checked the time. It was time to go to work.
1: Ah, uh, big thank you, well, hopefully we'll get some more stories by her. And Catherine, Catherine, what can I say? Thank you so much. And, tell, and give a little tip to your, your man as well, Jeremy, there, because I'm sure he might have had a little you know, hand in kind of producing that as well. Thank you so much, everyone. So, I'm <coughs> joking. <laughs> let, let he swallow the fly. <laughs> so next, let's like say Amy was there. And actually, Amy was going to be... The one we kind of pushed Amy to the front. If, you know, Tales to Terrify did win, Amy was going to be there, you know, and have to accept the award because no, no one else was there. So, a big. I want to say a big thank you to Amy as well. And I forgot to mention this. Actually, I'm going to... Just give us a second. I'm going to go get it. Amy sent us a postcard from Worldcon. Let's have a look. It came. It came yesterday. Just put the... Oh. Because I, 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 I didn't get into it about half ten last night from work and it was there waiting for us. And it's a cool, oh man, it's just so, it's just like the romantic side of, of science fiction, what I love. It's a postcard, you must have gotten it from like Worldcon. And I've never heard it, classic science fiction, Joseph O'Neill, The Land Under England. A Penguin classic book, and the picture is just am- amazing. It's, a kind of, it's kind of kind of weird shape boat, and it's like tropical kind of alien plants, and, and like an alien city in in the background. And it's such a nice postcard. I'll, I'll certainly keep it. And you know, just having a, a kind of fab time, Amy. So, Amy, thank you so much for sending. She does send cards, and it's lovely. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> keep on, Amy, wherever you go, send us a postcard. It's lovely. Really appreciate it. So, like I say, Amy was there, you know what I mean, and representing Tears of Terrified, but she also had her own stuff to do as well. And this is, you know, the one of our kind of presentations she thought would be nice to kind of, you know, just let other people, you know what I mean, because you do it live and then it's gone and finished. But this is nice just to get it, you know, all that work you put in it. you might as well let other people hear this essay. So this is Amy at WorldCon.
3: Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history, and today I have something special to share with you. This August, I am going to be a part of Mid-American 2, which is also the 74th World Science Fiction Convention. It's going to be held in Kansas City, Missouri, and I will be there. I'm going to be on some panels. I'm going to take part in a reading, and I'm also going to be giving a standalone talk. Uh, the standalone talk is part of the academic track of the con, and that is hosted by the Campbell Conference. The Campbell Conference is normally held each June at the University of Kansas's Gun Center for the Study of Science Fiction. But this year, it is going to be held as part of Worldcon. I'm delighted to be able to be a part of the con in this way, and I wanted to share that with you. For those of you who... Can't be at Worldcon this year, or for those of you who will be but have something else to be doing at the time that I'm scheduled to speak, well, I'd like to share that presentation with you. It is based on some work of mine that was just recently published. It's hot off the press, the ink is still wet. An essay of mine called His Fordship in the Capital and Big Brother in the Districts The Hunger Games and the Modern Dystopian Tradition. And that's published in the book Critical Insights, the Hunger Games Trilogy, edited by Lana Whited. And I thought my study, which basically uses a contemporary work as a window into some of the big issues of past classic works of the genre, was a good fit for this year's theme for the academic track, which is Tomorrow Is Now. So... I hope you will join me here as I give you my presentation His fordship in the capital and big brother in the districts. Just FYI, spoiler alert, I will be sharing spoilers about some classic dystopian works like Yevgeny Zamyatin's We and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and George Orwell's 1984, and I'll also be talking about spoilers from all three of the books in the Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins. So if you haven't read these works and don't want to know what's happened, well, consider yourself warned. You might want to check this out later. One of the most impressive aspects of Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games to me is how it engages the dystopian tradition of science fiction. It takes part in its conversation and pays tribute to its classics and answers a question that has been part of the dialogue for well over half a century, and that is, who is right in his warnings about the future, Aldous Huxley or George Orwell? Collins gives us, I think, a really interesting answer there. So that's what I'd like to talk about in my discussion. So, without further ado, 350 years after Sir Thomas More gave us the term utopia in his 1518 work by the same name, another British philosopher, John Stuart Mill, in a speech before the House of Commons, gave us the term dystopian. He identified a group who supported a policy that he opposed as dystopians because, quote, what they appear to favor is too bad to be practicable, end quote. that really fits very well. Dystopia becomes the accepted term, then, for the answer to the what's the worst that could happen question. What is the dark destination we should strive to avoid? What is the outcome of our actions or inactions, that we can still change so we don't end up in that unfavorable place. I think there's something inherently hopeful about the warnings that come with dystopias because you don't yell fire as a warning when everyone's already burned to a crisp, right? You only yell fire when there is time for people to get out of the burning building. And you only issue the warning of dystopia when there's time to quit that harmful action or start taking action when inaction is harmful in order to avoid the place, that world gone wrong that we don't want to end up in. And so this idea that what is too bad to be practicable is waiting around the corner and we've got to avoid it, part and parcel of the dystopian idea. It's as old as literature itself. Depending on how we read it, Plato's Republic is dystopia. And certainly by the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century there's great dystopian science fiction. H.G. Wells was writing The Time Machine and When the Sleeper Wakes, Jack London, The Iron Heel, E.M. Forster, The Machine Stops, etc. But I'd say the birth of a truly modern dystopian literary tradition required another ingredient that hadn't yet shown up, and that was the rise of the totalitarian nation-state. We get that, and in the process, the mother and father text of all modern science fiction, in the dystopian vein, with Yevgeny Zamyatin's pioneering We, first published in 1924 in English. It took more than 60 years for Russia to publish the work. It was banned in his home country for over 60 years. Informed by the bloody Russian Revolution and the rise of Soviet communism after it, Zamyatin, who was ultimately permanently exiled for his political perspectives, created a very dismal future in We, extrapolated from all the political trends he witnessed, He imagined a powerful one state, dictating all aspects of human life, down to the number of times every person was allowed to chew a bite of food. And he also imagined that one state seeking to expand its rigid and relentless control throughout the universe, not just across the planet, but into the stars. We pioneered many of the essential building blocks that appear repeatedly in other works of dystopias, including the Hunger Games. Let me give you some examples. Zamyatin conveys the dehumanization of the citizens of the one state by denying them names. They get numbers instead. Now, of course, the characters in the Hunger Games do have names, but their home regions aren't as fortunate. So Katniss Everdeen comes not from the evocative Appalachia, but instead the sterile district number 12. And once the games begin, she and her fellow tributes are directly tied to the number of the district that they represent. That's their identity. Another instance of trend-setting. Zamyatin depicts the constant surveillance of the one state by describing the buildings of the future as being, for example, completely of glass. So everyone is, quite literally, watching everybody else all the time. And there's this relentless sense of never having privacy, always being viewed and judged Similarly, in the Hunker Games, Katniss learns from a very early age that as an ordinary citizen of District 12, she may be observed at any time. She can't sing the wrong song in her home. She can't wear the wrong expression on her face during a public announcement. Then, of course, when she volunteers for tribute and becomes part of the Games, her life is transformed by the need to constantly play to the ever-present cameras and audience members, and particularly President Snow, if she hopes to survive. Now, there's hope in We. Uh, There's a forest beyond the walls of the one state, and there's the idea that there are survivors of the 200-year war who managed to get away from the state to elude capture and live as part of the land— And I think we also see that, the idea of the forest symbolizing freedom and escape, in The Hunger Games. Because Katniss, thanks to her late father, who taught her to hunt game and gather food and find self-sufficiency in nature, views that world as the world where she can be herself and where she can actually provide. Away from the ever-present cameras and away from the ever-present threat. There's another comparison I want to make, but I'll mention that at the end. The takeaway here is that there's an indelible influence that we has. It appears later in equally classic works by authors who read Zemyatin from Anthem by Ayn Rand. She really runs with the idea of the numbers, not names. In an anthem in 1938. In 1940, Calicane, which happens to be, by the way, up for a Retro Hugo Award for Best Novel, 1941, this year, by the Swede Karen Boy. That one really runs with Zamyatin's idea of surveillance and the state knowing all, being able to really see into your thoughts. And also plays with the idea of kind of agency capture in the sense that the protagonist is someone who really has, you know, been drinking the Kool-Aid, really has bought into all the propaganda and serves the state as part of its mechanism and only almost too late realizes the horror to which he's contributing. But definitely the best-known children of we are Brave New World, from 1932, by Aldous Huxley, and 1984, from 1949, by George Orwell. If you think about it, all major dystopias since then have had to, in some way or another, represent. The authors have to wrestle with this huxley orwell Conversation and determine whether they're going to be Team Huxley or Team Orwell. On which side does this work fall? As American critic Neil Postman reminds us in 1985's Amusing Ourselves to Death, quote, Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Who is right? Right. That is the big question of dystopias since these two great works were published and their competing visions shared with the public. I think the thing that I'm most impressed about by The Hunger Games is that it answers the question which nightmare is going to win, the Huxley nightmare or the Orwellian nightmare, Which most accurately predicts where we're headed? By saying both. Because Suzanne Collins balances a Huxleyan nightmare in the capital with an Orwellian nightmare in the districts to show us how both of these dystopian visions could coexist. That in fact we're not immune from the dangers of either of these worlds gone wrong. So let's unpack this a bit. And let's start with talking about the resonances between Brave New World and the Hunger Games trilogy. In Brave New World, Aldous Huxley creates a futuristic Earth where humanity is mass-produced and custom-designed for assigned tasks. Uh, The historical Henry Ford, the American industrialist who sponsored development of the assembly line technique of production, he's revered like a god And ten world controllers of the world state, each of whom is addressed as his fordship, reign over this highly stratified, tightly constrained, stagnant society. The oft-repeated slogan that goes in this brave new world is, Everybody's happy nowadays. But what exactly does this happiness entail? Huxley imagines this shallow, hedonistic society in which citizens are entertained into mindlessness, right? They're, they're the ultimate passive consumers. They watch immersive, multisensory films, the feelies. They play ridiculous games like centrifugal bumble puppy. They engage in meaningless recreational sex and, on frequent occasions, the cathartic group orgy, orgy-porgy, And they disappear into holidays in their own minds, courtesy of the hallucinogenic drug Soma. They're not challenged by their work. They're not engaged in any serious decision-making. They're not focused on anything beyond their own short-term self-centered pleasure. They're dependent, and thus they are easily controlled, easily led. And therein lies, I think, Huxley's great warning Now, let's think of Suzanne Collins's Citizens of the Capitol. I think they share a lot in common with Huxley's Citizens of the World State. Let me give you a few examples. First, a majority of those who live in the Capitol are consumed by the trivial fad and fashion rule, making stylists, uh, described by Katniss as, quote, so dyed, stenciled, and surgically altered their grotesque, end quote, celebrities in their own right they're also dependent katniss comes to realize that the capital dwellers are are little more than ignorant gullible dependent youngsters no more responsible for themselves or the society they inhabit than an infant would be you may recall that in Mockingjay, she defends the remaining members of her capital prep team from the leadership of District 13 by saying, quote, They're not evil or cruel. They're not even smart. Hurting them, it's like hurting children. They don't see. I mean, they don't know, end quote. Another example from Brave New World, uh, a parallel with The Hunger Games, the protagonists of both tales are outsiders. In Brave New World, members of the public view John as a wildly primitive creature, because he grew up beyond their regulated society on the reservation, where behavior occurs that they see as beastly, even though we, as readers, see those same behaviors as normal, like the practice of sexual reproduction, the maintenance of family relationships, the observance of cultural and religious rituals. The citizens of the world state end up calling John the savage because of his so-called uncivilized origins and practices. And in the same way, Katniss in The Hunger Games is viewed as something different and less sophisticated by members of the capital, because she comes from District 12. She defies the Capitol's aesthetics. There's even the savage notion that comes across when members of her prep team first try to change her appearance. They fuss over her natural body, seeing it as too rough and too hairy. And once they've waxed and plucked and scoured and scrubbed her, Flavius says, quote, you almost look like a human being now, end quote. In fact, the othering kind of works both ways, because at one point Katniss thinks that she should be embarrassed standing naked in front of her team, quote, but they are so unlike people that I'm no more self-conscious than if a trio of oddly colored birds were pecking around my feet, end quote. The result of the artificial and limited view that the capital citizens have is that John and Katniss... These savage characters, these reflections to our perspective of natural humanity, because they're not artificial, they're not altered, they represent something alien to the capital citizens. And because of that, the capital folk can view uh, their lives, their sufferings, even their deaths without empathy. Huxley describes how Darwin Bonaparte, who's the Feely Corporation's most expert big-game photographer, plants microphones and cameras around the home to which John has retreated to escape. He gets footage of the savage, and he thinks, "...the greatest since his taking of the famous all-howling stereoscope Feely of the Gorilla's Wedding." He stalks the man like a hunter after his prey in order to get this incredibly personal footage. And John's private personal anguish becomes the multi-sensory movie The Savage of Surrey, seen, heard, and felt in every first-class feely palace in Western Europe. There's no sense that they are watching a human being. Likewise, in the Collins trilogy, the Children of the districts are reaped for the hunger Games, so that their suffering can be broadcast as a warning, yes, as a reminder to the people of the districts, of course, but also as entertainment for the citizens of the capital who watch, who place bets, who follow the killings like they're watching a sports competition. And here is where Suzanne Collins gives us one of her twists because rather than leaving it there, she takes it a step forward. When Katniss mourns Rue and treats her dead body with love and respect, she takes a step toward forcing the audience from the Capitol to recognize the tribute's inherent humanity. She makes Rue's life and death abruptly real for those capital viewers. Another example. Individuals fare similarly, that is, poorly, in the dystopias of Huxley and Collins. For example, in Brave New World, the few independent minds who rise above the ranks of conformity are punished. Take, for example, the gifted Helmholtz Watson, the handsome and brilliant lecturer at the College of Emotional Engineering. He rebels at the stifling prospect of writing endless and artless propaganda for the world state. He tries instead to get his students, and his colleagues, and others to think for themselves. He reads heretical work on the virtues of solitude, and he helps John destroy rations of the brain-numbing Soma drug, knowing that he's ensuring his own downfall in the process. Ultimately, his fordship Mustafa Mond permanently banishes Watson. That gives him the choice of which island will serve as his lifelong prison. And Watson chooses the inhospitable climate of the Falkland Islands for the sake of his art. Quote, I believe one would write better if the climate were bad, if there were a lot of wind and storms, for example. In the same way you have Himholtz-Watson basically overcoming his environment, Suzanne Collins gives us CINNA he is a product of the vapid capital culture, but he is better than it is. From the first moment Katniss meets him, she can see he's an independent soul. His appearance reflects his own aesthetic taste, rather than current popular fads. His exquisite designs were also intentionally provocative and politically subversive. When her would-be wedding dress transforms into the defiant form of a mockingjay in Catching Fire, Caesar Flickerman asks Sinna to take a bow before the cameras, in acknowledgment of his artistic achievement. Katniss thinks, and suddenly I am so afraid for him. What has he done? Something terribly dangerous, an act of rebellion in itself. Now Sinna isn't banished. He pays for his nonconformity with his life. But here again is another twist. Senna appreciates the danger he courts in enough time to leave costume designs and encouraging words to help Katniss in her final fight against the Capitol. So even after he is gone, he is still contributing to the fight. The real key to the Huxleyan nightmare that Suzanne Collins presents in the Capitol is choice. Did the capital citizens choose to relinquish their autonomy in favor of becoming dependent children? Collins gives us her answer in the name of the dystopian nation itself, Panem. This goes back to the ancient satirical poet Juvenal and his critique of his fellow Romans. In his satire number 10, he laments that the Roman citizens have traded their birthright of political engagement willingly for security And amusement. In fact, Plutarch Heavensby explains this to Katniss in Mockingjay. Quote, it's a saying from thousands of years ago written in a language called Latin about a place called Rome. Translates into bread and circuses. The writer was saying that in return for full bellies and entertainment, his people had given up their political responsibilities and therefore their power, end quote. So it was willingly relinquishing their liberty and the responsibilities that came with it. But again, we have a twist. When enough members of the Capitol wake up to their dependent plight and decide to challenge President Snow and his regime, Plutarch is a good example. There's also, for example, Cressida and her camera crew. They help to bring about permanent change. Alone, Huxley's John the Savage just takes his own life in despair. But surrounded by allies, Katniss the Mockingjay survives. Okay, we've seen the Huxleyan nightmare in the capital. What about the Orwellian nightmare in the districts? In 1984, published in 1949, George Orwell creates Britain of the Future, which has emerged from a devastating nuclear war to become Airstrip One, It's a claustrophobic society whose rulers are symbolized by the ever-present image of an ever-watching Big Brother. Members of the population know they're never truly alone. They're under surveillance in their comfortless barracks by not only their family members and their neighbors, but also their two-way television sets to confirm that they are always loyal and obedient. And citizens' knowledge is manipulated by the government that constantly rewrites both distant and recent history to serve the function of pro-state propaganda. And their ideas are constrained by newspeak, a limited language designed to make traitorous, that is, independent, thoughts unspeakable, and therefore ultimately even unthinkable. Now, Airstrip 1 does not represent the choice of the people. Instead, it represents the will of the powerful few imposed and maintained by fear and pain on the many. When the protagonist, Winston Smith, comes to appreciate the nightmare in which he's living and struggles to liberate himself, he's brutally tortured, he's twisted, he's finally broken. His tormentor articulates the primary warning of the novel eloquently when he says... Quote, always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Now I think the same warning about what the power-hungry will do to establish and enhance their authority appears in the Hunger Games trilogy. Thus, President Coyne in Mockingjay proves to be equally willing to sacrifice human lives in the cause of consolidating her power as President Snow was in all three novels. Let's look at some examples here of some parallels, direct tributes really, in the Hunger Games to 1984. First of all, there are clearly echoes in The Daily Life, Life in District 12, and a majority of the rest of the districts. So many similarities with Life in Orwell's Airstrip 1. The buildings reflect shabby decay. The people exist in a perpetual state of want. They go to public rallies. They view government-made propaganda films because they have to. They labor in assigned industries to fill quotas dictated by the central government, because they have to. And the products of these industries don't fulfill the needs of the people. Both Winston Smith in 1984 and Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games turn to illegal black market alternatives until these options are taken away from them, because that's the only way they can get what they need. Furthermore, in Orwell's Dystopia, a person mustn't entertain any idea questions or contradicts the state. That's a thought crime. Or even look like that's what he or she might be doing. That's a face crime. And we see both of these in The Hunger Games. Katniss notes that, quote, When I was young, I scared my mother to death the things I would blurt out about District 12, about the people who rule our country, Panem, from the far-off city called the capital. Eventually I understood this would only lead us to more trouble, so I learned to hold my tongue and to turn my features into an indifferent mask so that no one could ever read my thoughts, quote. What happens to the characters is a direct mirror in The Hunger Games of 1984. For example, Peeta's hijacking in Mockingjay, that is, his physical torture and psychological reconditioning by the Capitol clearly reflects Winston Smith's physical and psychological torture in the dreaded Room 101. Now, Smith is told, We, the party, control all records, and we control all memories. And the memories part of that, in particular, is important. PETA's memories in the Hunger Games trilogy are refashioned to fit President Snow's designs until he doesn't know what's real and what's false. Now, Smith is tormented so that he betrays his lover, Julia, and begs for her to be tortured in his plays. Peta is programmed so that he attacks his love, Katniss, and tries to strangle her. But in both cases, the rulers release their victims in order to send a loud and clear message about the ultimate power that the government wields over its people, power enough to break and remake each citizen, Smith becomes a warning, Peta a weapon. But here's the Collins twist again. Unlike Smith, Peta is not fully broken by the torments that he experiences. With the help of Katniss, he actually fights to restore and replace his memories, and he overcomes his fear conditioning. In the end, Peta doesn't give Katniss death, like Snow intended, but life, a new life with him and the new life of the children they make together. On a related and musical note, there's a clear tribute here. Collins employs the song The Hanging Tree in the Hunger Games trilogy, much like Orwell repeats the song The Chestnut Tree in 1984. Now, Orwell didn't invent the Chestnut Tree song. It was already a popular Glenn Miller tune, and his readers would have clearly recognized it. It was about love. But romantic love and emotional attachment are forbidden in Airstrip One. No commitment is supposed to come before each person's loyalty to Big Brother. So the original familiar, under the spreading chestnut tree, I loved you and you loved me, nice romantic song, becomes in Orwell's Dystopia, under the spreading chestnut tree i sold you and you sold me this selling speaks to how in the end big brother always wins smith and his lover each betray the other while in custody collins echoes orwell with the hanging tree not like orwell's song the chestnut tree a reminder of how the state triumphs over everything even love it's quite the opposite The Hanging Tree is a subversive song about a man condemned to be hanged, calling to his love to join him, so the two can die together and be free. Love wins in this version. Only in Mockingjay, when Katniss already has a couple of trips to the Hunger Games under her belt, does she comprehend why her mother had wanted her to forget the song The Hanging Tree, never sing it again. She lives in a place where, quote, "...plenty of people were executed, end quote, by hanging, whether they were guilty or not." Of the character singing the song, Katniss thinks maybe his lover was already sentenced to death and he was trying to make it easier to let her know he'd be waiting, or maybe he thought the place he was leaving her was really worse than death. Didn't I want to kill Peeta with that syringe to save him from the capital?" So the hanging tree is the exact opposite of the chestnut tree in nineteen eighty-four. It's not about lovers selling each other out to the state, it's about love stronger than the power of the capital, stronger even than the survival instinct. It's about defiance and hope for something better. Now in Huxley's Brave New World and in Collins's The Capitol, the characters essentially chose to give up, to abdicate their liberty and responsibilities in exchange for a dependent childlike existence. Mustafa Mond in Huxley's work discusses how people chose happiness over truth. Now their decision-making apparatus has atrophied true, but in the beginning there was choice, and the same is true for the capital. And we see that because some people in the capital do choose, ultimately, to help the other side. They do recognize that they don't have to be dependent. Here in 1984 and in the districts, we see a populace whose freedom was taken away and trampled by force, never voluntarily given up. The government maintains its authority through fear and violence. Once more, though, Collins ends with a twist. Orwell leaves us with an individual destroyed. Collins, however, leaves us with individuals who are truly, yes, wounded and scarred, but they're also survivors who have outlived the powers that oppressed them. Orwell leaves readers with a broken wreck of a protagonist, a beaten down and brainwashed servant of Big Brother. Huxley's hero takes his own life, but Collins provides hope. And here at the end, I want to bring us full circle and go back to the work that set the tone for both Brave New World and 1984, Yevgeny Zamyatin's We. Because in giving hope at the end, I think Suzanne Collins brings us all the way back to that first great modern dystopia, We. Now it's true that We's protagonist finds no happy ending. D-503 endures a lobotomy-like brain surgery. And that restores him to a kind of passive obedience. And his love, I-330, is brutally executed. But, despite this, Zamyatin offers readers the promise of something more. Another character, O-90, is pregnant with D-503's child. And she manages to escape the one state and find refuge beyond the wall in the forest. The next generation, we are promised, will be born free. And this is where Suzanne Collins leaves us at the end of Mockingjay, with the children of Katniss and Peeta, playing freely and without fear in the meadow. The little girl and her brother don't know they play on a graveyard, we're told. Katniss and Peeta will never fully recover from all they've endured, that's true, but They'll find joy in watching their children experience the kind of childhood they never had. And this brings hope. Their next generation can, quote, take the words of the song for granted. Here it's safe, here it's warm, end quote. And so I applaud Collins for engaging in the dystopian conversation, in considering the sort of world gone wrong envisioned first by Zamyatin and later in different ways by Huxley and Orwell, and giving both Huxley and Orwell credit, balancing their dystopian visions in her depictions of the capital and the districts. I also think it's very important that Collins adds her own twist, that she subverts the hopelessness of aspects of these dystopias, and provides an ending note of hope herself. Worlds can go wrong, she suggests, in both Huxleyan and Orwellian ways. But if we step up, they can also be saved. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this glimpse at my research in my recent essay, His Fordship in the Capital and big brother in the districts. And while I know you can't see all the PowerPoint slides or hear the Q&A, I do hope that you got something out of the talk. I certainly did. I appreciated the opportunity to go over it again and to share a little bit of Worldcon with you. I have lots of things I'm very excited about sharing with you in the near future. So I will join you again soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you.
1: Big thank you, Amy, for that. Thank you so much. You know, I was looking back at our correspondence between me and Amy for this, um, you know, section and ever the professional I think I was meant to play it last week or the week before <laughs> I just I don't know, I, I read an email once and then that's it I'm too busy, busy at the moment Bloody going out Pokemon hunting <gasps> level 20, I'm so close to level 25 yes I am a god in my village <laughs> thank you so much for that, you're a star, thank you so that is Starship Sobaz 449 Put the bed. God, nearly 4.50, man. And Jeremy has, I think now Jeremy as well, just to mention, Jeremy's on his way to Poland. He's had UK and now he's into Poland. So, you know, I think his relations are all over there as well. So, big thank you for Jeremy putting this show together. And he's, like you say, he's got drafts of all kinds of shows for a few weeks while he's away. So... Big up to there to Jeremy as well. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Well, the sh- the week we played the winner of best Novelette in the two thousand and sixteen Hugo Awards. What did you think? Did you like that story? Did you like last week's Hugo story? It'd be it'd be interesting, you know, to kind of know. Let we know on Facebook or you know just drop us an email starshipsover at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for you know, you know how we we kind of played like a section of which is went down a storm that you know the, the translations has went down a storm that that month special so if you've got any ideas you know what i mean for little quirks like that let we know do you know what i mean because we're always kind of open to ideas and we're certainly looking into doing other things as well so if you've got some thoughts and even on how the, the show's run let us know business side There's been a load, honestly. I swear to God, there's been a load of people pulling out of like the donations. And please, if you want to kind of help, we keep doing this. Do you know what I mean? Getting Hugo's stories and playing them, support. Man, has been because it comes. Most people don't like stop the thing. It's just the card fails, and then you know you kind. I think most people have like a a separate email account for the PayPal, and you you send. You know, I send like a little reminder saying hey, it's it's, it's, it's stopped. The, the funds have stopped. But you don't hear back. So please, if you don't subscribe or you don't kind of, you know, please help out. We, you know, it, it's getting a game where it with peaks and troughs. And at the moment, there's, like I say, I bet there's about, within two weeks, there's been about 30 people cancel. Do you know what I mean? We haven't got that many. Do you know what I mean? There's been some, some like let's say, the £10 monthly ones cancel, which is, they're the ones that you kind of, I shed a tear, <laughs> I shed a tear on the night before I took myself in the bed when uh, when was cancelled. So, honest to God, help out. it would be fantastic. We're kind of we're, we're needing it again. Do you know what I mean? It's just like oh, here we go again. So, until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Ooh.
2: survive this terrible ordeal can they win through with their integrity unscathed can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic ju- hold up Tune in next week
3: for the next exciting installment of. Shuttle set for launch. will be opened in one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.